All right, we're going to get rolling. Uh, so I know some folks are probably going to be walking in, but let's go ahead and pray, and then uh, we will dive into tonight. Father, I thank you that we have everything that we need for life and for godliness. And Father, I pray that even as we are working through um, our material tonight where we are um, talking about the Romans, God, I pray that you would give us... Um, special insight into what exactly uh, we need to know going into um, this section. And Father, I pray that I, I would make it clear. Um, God, I pray that you would remove distractions from us and that we would be able to focus well. And God, um, I know that this is a difficult time for some folks with Christmas and busyness. Um, Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow us to still our hearts and still our minds um, for the purpose of being able to learn about a topic that doesn't get covered very frequently. And as is my custom, I would just ask you to pray for me and pray that uh, I would be able to focus and be able to um, explain well um, what I say would be accurate and be beneficial. Um, and I would say nothing out of harmony with the gospel. If you would, take a moment and pray for me. Father, I look forward to wrapping up our series tonight. Um, I know there is some material here that is going to be very foreign to many of us. So God, I pray that you would help me explain well what is actually going on, that I would be accurate and be beneficial and it would be clear. Um, and God, I pray that you would be the one that gets the glory from this. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, come on in, find seats. Um, we are in the very last week of our series um, tonight. So this is going to be the last time that we're going to be meeting to talk about uh, God's uh, plan to work through history. We're going to arbitrarily break it off at your boy Johnny B tonight. Um, but we'll get that here in just a moment. So let's recap where we were last week. Last week was when we really started hitting the intertestamental period where we started talking about Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Um, and so there is like a singular mention of the Greeks in the Old Testament. Um, and that's several, several years before they even show up on the scene um, in prophecy. And so this is something that is we're mostly ignorant of in this time frame. So we were talking about the Greeks. Um, the big points that I wanted us to take away there was that Alexander the Great is the reason why the New Testament is written in Greek. So one of the big questions we started off by addressing um, as being why we needed to do this series is why is the Old Testament written in Hebrew and the New Testament is written in Greek and the Romans are in charge? We finally got that Greek answer last week, and we're going to get the Romans being in charge this week. Okay, So, one, the New Testament is written in Greek because of Alexander the Great. Um, we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll pick up with him again here in just a bit to make sure that we um, understand rightly this transition between the Greeks and the Romans. He plays a very pivotal role there, um, and he is going to be forcing the issue of Hellenization. We're really going to talk about that here in just a bit. Yeah? So... If you want more information, go listen to last week. Um, I do want to add just a little bit of detail as to how big a deal it is that the New Testament was written in Greek and that Greek was spoken in this area. Um, when you get into the western part of... Uh, Actually, let me just pull it up. When you get into the western part of the empire in uh, for Rome... Let's pull this up. Boom. Whenever you get over in this western part of Rome... All of this area is really going to be speaking Latin primarily, but whenever you get into the Greek and then the rest of the what used to be the old Babylonian and Assyrian Empire, they're going to continue to speak Greek um, pretty much every day. Now, if you're in the government, you're going to be speaking Latin, you're going to be using Latin for the military, the government, that kind of jazz. But my point that I want to make is this Greek influence wasn't just something that happened to influence uh, us as Christians whenever we think about um, the New Testament, uh, Marcus Aurelius, who is one of the Roman emperors who's going to be in about the mid-2nd century, about 150 to 170, he writes a uh, book called The Meditations, and he actually writes it not in Latin, but in Greek. And the reason he does that is because he's doing it as like an homage to Greek culture. Right, So this is a big deal that this is something that's even going on at this point in history. So I wanted to highlight just how big a deal that was um, before we moved on. Cool? 
All right, so if you want more information, you can go check that out from last week. Where are we going tonight? We are going to be talking about the Maccabean Revolt, and we're going to talk about how the uh, Jews had actually earned their freedom for a time. Then we're going to talk about the Hasmonean Dynasty. It's not really it's not really a good thing to call them a dynasty because it doesn't really last all that long, but it is a family. The Maccabeans are the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans are the Maccabean family. Don't worry about it. We'll get there. Uh, so we're going to talk about the Maccabean revolt, the Hasmoneans. Then we're going to talk about how Rome shows up in the fray. And then we finally get to your boy, Johnny B. And we will end with John the Baptist for this series. Yeah? Cool with that? All right. So let's pick it up with the Maccabean revolt and their freedom. We left off about the year 170, technically it's about 168 BC, with a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV is what um, he's more uh, commonly known as. Um, so I said that he was pressing the issue of Hellenization big time on everybody. Uh, whenever you look back at that map where you remember the Ptolemies were down there in Egypt, and then you had further to the north and to the east, you had the Seleucids. Um, Ptolemy was really cool with Jews worshiping how they worshiped for years. Like, he didn't care. The Seleucids, not so much. Their deal was they were going to make everyone Greek. They thought it was superior, and so they're going to root out all Jewish things, whether it's culturally... Um, uh, th things that culturally set them apart, dietary restrictions, religiously. He was trying to snuff every bit of that out. And so in 168, Antiochus Epiphanes actually um, sets up an altar to Zeus, to Jupiter, in the temple, and he sacrifices a couple of pigs on the altar in Jerusalem. And then he starts going out to all the towns that are around there, and he starts working through the rest of his empire, and he is requiring that every town set up an altar to Zeus, and that they sacrifice animals to Zeus that are unclean. Some are pigs, some are just different animals, but he is forcing the issue not just from Jerusalem, but down to every level. And so this struggle that we're actually seeing with the Maccabean Revolt, this is actually depicted in two books, First and Second Maccabees. When's the last time you read First or Second Maccabees? If you're a Protestant, you may not have ever even heard of it. Okay. First and Second Maccabees is in part of the Catholic canon, what we call the Apocrypha. And so there are parts of the Catholic scriptures that were adopted in the 16th century, by the way, 16th century AD. So we're talking, you know, 16, 1700 years after they were written. They are adopted, and that's actually in part of the Catholic canon. And First and Second Maccabees actually details this whole revolt, this whole period of their history, okay? But what's going on there is uh, there's the Seleucid Empire is moving towards this place called um, uh, Medain. We'll talk about that here in just a bit, or Modain. And uh, there's this cat named Matthias Maccabeus. Matthias Maccabee. Maccabeus is just the Greek form of his word. But Matthias, he's going to be one that leads the revolt. Now, the question as to why he's the one that leads the revolt is very easy to get because... In 168, in Modain, where he lives, this, uh, this Greek uh, legate who is like a, 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 a government official comes and says, hey, y'all need to set up an altar. Here's Zeus. Start sacrificing. And Matthias said, no, we won't do that because he is actually the priest that's there in that town. And they say, okay, if you don't do it, we'll have someone else who will. So they go find some other apostate, somebody else who is Jewish, they don't care who it is, but this guy, he's willing to go make this sacrifice. So he goes on up the steps, and he's going to go to the altar, and he's going to make this sacrifice. You want to take a stab at what Matthias does? Kills that dude where he stood. Would not allow this guy to come up there and make this sacrifice. And whenever that emboldened the crowd, you know what the next thing Matthias went and did? He went and found that Seleucid legate. He went and found the dude who's trying to make him do this. He went and found that cat, and he killed him too. The revolt is on. Like, it just went from, like, a tinderbox to now it is smoking to now it is burning and it is about to explode, right? You have had these tensions where 
this Hellenizing influences were coming into these Jewish towns and they did not take to it very kindly, right? You're telling us we have to eat this unclean food, we can't do it, right? You can see how that would be just an incredibly offensive thing for someone who is trying to be faithfully uh, living out the commands of the covenant. And the Greeks are saying, no, 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 you gotta do this. And then whenever they start getting to this point where they're making sacrifices in Jerusalem and they're having to do it here, not gonna happen on our watch. Two dudes die as a result of that. Tracking with that? And so the revolt is on. So what happens from there is Matthias takes his five sons, one of which is named Judas. We'll meet him here in a second. Um, another one is Simon. So Judas is the middle son of the, of the five. And Simon is the second of the five. We'll meet him a little bit later. So they can't stay in town anymore because now the Seleucids, the Greeks, are coming after them. So they have to go up in the mountains, and so they start gathering people when they are there, and he is gonna start launching guerrilla warfare. They gather a group of about two, 300, turns into 500, turns into 1,000, and they just start spreading out, and they start doing these hit-and-run tactics, and they start uh, attacking these Hellenized towns. And when I say attacking, I do mean that. Like, they go in there, they find any kind of Greek official, and they try to kill him. If that dude makes it out alive, okay, great. Their job's not done. They're gonna go in there, they're gonna find whoever was in charge of that town, and if they had been given in to these Hellenizing influences, those elders, they would kill them on the spot. And the next thing they would do is they would go around town and they would round up all the boys who had not been circumcised and they would perform forced circumcisions. Like this is, it sounds like there, it's just like this great story, but like you, <laughs> You gotta consider there's a little bit of humanity here about how they're actually going about doing this. They are pursuing covenantal faithfulness and they are revolting against these Hellenizing influences, but this is how it turns out, right? So there's these guerrilla uh, tactics. They start getting out, uh, out among the towns. They start attacking people. And then as they're doing that, they're just gathering forces over and over again, right? So every time they go and they get a little more bold, that's how revolts work. So you go from a revolt to eventually it's either gonna get put down or it's gonna turn into a revolution. This one doesn't get put down, it gets turned into a re revolution. Old Matthias eventually dies um, at about 164, and there's this cat, um, I'm sorry, 166, and there's this cat named Judas, AKA the Hammer. He takes over, this is his middle son. This dude is gonna pick up the mantle and he is gonna run with it. They are so bold at this point that they are no longer doing these guerrilla tactics. They're actually gonna build armies and they're gonna meet the Seleucids head on. They went from doing a force of 500 to 1,000 to now they're massing somewhere around seven, 8,000 people and they besiege Jerusalem, right? Because the Seleucids hold Jerusalem. That's like the center of power. That's one of the big cities that has the walls. And so this is a big deal. And so Judas is gonna take on the, the mantle of leadership there. And when they go to attack Jerusalem, they actually take it. Like, let's just pause for a moment. Four or 500 years before this, you had about 20,000 Jews return from the Babylonian captivity, period. Right? And if you remember, um, Judah was throwing in that many cavalry in Saul's military back in the, you know, 1000 BC. And we're 500 years removed from that being all the people that are left. So they went from that point of coming back from the exile and they are incredibly reduced in their numbers and their capabilities. They have about four centuries, they start growing, and then we have the revolt that goes on from here. Their armies are not huge, but they are motivated. Let me just say it that way. You tracking with that? For them to be able to take over Jerusalem from a standing army the size of the Seleucids, this is a big deal. And so what Judas does is not only does he go in there and he wins, uh, the victory and takes over Jerusalem, he then, just like they did at all these other little towns, who's the guys that are in charge? Where are those priests at? And what do you think Judas does to those guys who have been given in to those Hellenizing influences? He kills them where they stand. And what he does is they rededicate the temple, essentially. They start with the altar, because that's where the pigs were slaughtered, right? And so as they are doing this, they cleanse the altar, they rededicate it, um, they make it to where it is now uh, part of their worship. It goes back to the way it's supposed to be um, under Levitical law. And there is actually a uh, holiday in Judaism today that remembers this. Does anybody know what that is? Passover. 
It's going on right now. Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the remembrance of when this faithful return to rightful worship at the temple after all this craziness that happened with the Seleucids. That is a remembrance from Judas Maccabeus the hammer. That's a remembrance of what he did. So he ousts all those priests who were dirtbags in his eyes. He either kills them or makes them leave. And he installs faithful priests. And this is, at this point, they're trying to do their best to actually point towards Levitical um, lineage, but they kind of play it fast and loose. Just, I'll just let you know, okay? So what's going on at this point is that you have this revolt that has turned into a revolution. They've taken over the capital, the most important city, the place where the worship is supposed to happen, and they have won. And what they have done is they have laid the groundwork for a dynasty. That dynasty is not the Maccabean dynasty. That dynasty is called the Hasmonean dynasty. Okay, same dudes, same thing. Okay, let me piece together some other big picture stuff here. The Maccabees, they were priests. They are either of the line of Aaron through the Levites or close enough. Like, honestly, it's kind of hard to tell, right? Um, but they are faithful priests in their eyes. And so that's why you see them having these forced circumcisions wherever they go. That's why they're killing these priests who are given in to these Hellenizing influences, right? And so one other thing that's going on during this time, if you read first, and I think it's actually in the beginning part of 2 Maccabees, whenever the Maccabees are starting to get the revolt on and they're about to start attacking the Seleucids, by this time Rome had actually taken over Ptolemaic Egypt. So they had actually taken over Egypt from the Ptolemies. They'd actually pushed all the way through what is now modern-day Turkey into Asia Minor. They had taken all that over as well. And when the Maccabees saw that they might need some help, do you know what they did? They wrote a letter to Rome. And that's in, I believe, 2 Maccabees. You can actually read what it is that Judah sent to them, right? So there was contact, diplomatic contact, between the Jews and the Roman Empire. Well, they were the Republic at this point. Between them and Rome from... 160 BC, all right? This is a big deal. And you should hear like the ominous music in the background also at this point, right? Because at this point you got the Mediterranean Sea and you got Egypt and then Turkey up here and Rome is just kind of encircling, like they're, they're coming for this area, yeah? So here's the point that I wanna make as we think about the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt, what it proved was that it was in fact possible for the Jews to cast off a much more powerful oppressor. That's what it proved. Do you see why that might be important a century and a half later? Whenever the Romans are in charge and people are real angsty and they're anticipating this Christ who's gonna come and gonna throw off the Romans, come now. Like, we're, we're just a handful of generations away from when that happened last. We did it then, we can do it again. And we know the Christ is going to be the one who's going to do that. At least that's what they considered, right? And so you're starting to see some of the tensions start to build. The Romans are on the horizon. They're no longer beyond the horizon. They are on the horizon now. But at this point, the Maccabean Revolt was a success. Let me stop right there. Thoughts, comments, questions about the Maccabees, about Judas, Matthias, and all them boys. Ed, yes, sir. So all of this took place before the Romans became Well, the Romans had already won basically the Carthaginian Wars, the Punic Wars, and they had already been pressing into Greece, and they had already been pressing into uh, um, modern-day Turkey. I'm pulling a map up for you right now. So this is in 212 B.C., and so the Romans are eventually going to, they're basically, they've already taken over Egypt down here, and they've already taken over the Greek holdings from the Seleucids and the Antagonids that are here in Greece. This is like Macedonia, Thrace, and then this is like Athens, uh, uh, Corinth, and then Sparta's down here. The Romans had already taken over all that. And so they had already fought this war with the, uh, um, with the Carthaginians during this time, and it's basically over at this point. And so now they're starting to head east. And so by the time that the Maccabeans are in charge, the Romans are sitting right up here near Antioch, and they're sitting down here at Alexandria and what is present-day Cairo, okay? And the Maccabeans are essentially free. They're not completely free. We'll talk about that in a second, but 
That's, that's the situation we find ourselves in at this point. The first and second Maccabees, I, the argument for first and second Maccabees being added into the canon, um, into the Apocrypha, um, according to the Catholics, I don't actually know the argument for the first and second Maccabees. Um, like Baal and the Dragon, the Wisdom of Solomon, uh, uh, the Wisdom of Syriac, those kinds of books. Um, there seems to be a lot of um, points of connection because remember, this is in the year 1580-ish or so. So this is after Martin Luther had nailed the 95 Theses onto the door, right? And then about a decade later, these other books get canonized into the, the, the Catholic Bible. And some of those books seem to really indicate that there is a hierarchy that God is intending to work out, which the Catholics will say, well, that's the Pope right there. I don't think First and Second Maccabees have much to do with that. But that's part of the reason why the Apocrypha was canonized for Catholics. Um, so I didn't actually answer your question other than to say, I think it was part of Second Temple Jewish literature, which is this period of literature that runs from about 500 BC until 70 AD when the temple gets destroyed by the Romans. Right During that time period, there's a bunch of literature um, that is um, apocalyptic literature that also supports this hierarchical hierarchy, there you go, turn that into an adjective, um, form of uh, leadership within the church. And so there's a very good argument that the Apocrypha is added into the Catholic Bible as a uh, rejoinder to the 95 Theses and the Protestant Reformation. So it's a counter-reformation. So again, a lot of information, tangentially related, not directly related. All right, other questions? All right, let me get back to where we were. So we talked about uh, this Maccabean revolt is now establishing that it's a, it's a test case, that we can, in fact, overthrow those who are oppressing us, and we can, we can do well, okay? That's what it establishes. And I'm trying to build a case here throughout the rest of the night that this is just going to build and build and build and build until you get to your boy Johnny B. Okay? So let me show you how well they actually did with the Maccabean Revolt. So this is a map of uh, the Judean province. Um, this is basically the Hasmonean kingdom. And so you've got Jerusalem there and Jericho here. Moda'in, there's the place where the first you know, the first blow of the Maccabean Revolt happened with Matthias and them boys, right? So that's Moda'in, and so they initially established this area right here at the beginning, and then it branches out to on the other side of the Jordan, a little bit further up here, a little bit further south, and then they just start spreading. But let me ask you, what does that map actually look like to you? It looks like present-day Israel, because, I mean, it is. It's that area. But if you're thinking backwards in time, whose territory actually looked like this in Israel's history? David. The Hasmonean dynasty actually reaches essentially the same geographic area as the kingdom of David and then Solomon. So when I say that this was a test case that you can throw off your oppressor and not just do okay, they actually are returning to what was their golden age. Right? You see how that works? Now, spoiler, it doesn't last long. We're talking like a century. 63, it's over, because the Romans are going to be in there, Pompey is going to come rolling through, and it's going to get real bad. Right? So this is about a century worth of work, and this is the extent till they make it. But my point is, they pull it off. They really do. And we've got to see that that's part of what is the building tension of when we arrive in the New Testament. Yeah? All right. So that map, I just wanted to show you, that's it's not a small area. This wasn't like they controlled some small conclaves. Okay? All right. So Hasmoneans. Um, the Hasmoneans, the word Hasmonean comes from the Jewish name for Josephus. Uh, Matthias, one of his great-great-great-grandfathers, was named Josephus. And when you translate or transliterate Josephus into Greek, it turns into Asmonius. 
So you can see how we get to Hasmonean from Asmonius, not far. There's also another town that's actually not far from Moda'in that is, uh, that's actually listed in the book of Joshua as uh, Hasmona. And so there seems to be some kind of connection there, neither here nor there. The Maccabees are the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans are the Maccabees. Okay, we're clear with that? All right. That being said, the first Hasmonean, when they actually are declared to be the rulers of this area, is a guy named John Hyrcanius, or John Hyrcanus. He is going to take the banner of removing Hellenizing influence, and he is going to push it even further. They have started to expand. Right? Let me just kind of pull us back here to the map. You can see the area under... The Hasmonean Revolt is his first little area, and then expansion under Hyrcanius the first is all this in the red, that light color red, right? So I mean like he is going to start pushing further and further on those gains that they had made. Now, here is the problem. In order to actually make sure that he is controlling these areas, he actually has to give over some control because they're not completely free, right? There are parts of the Seleucid um, uh, Empire, uh, the Parthenons are gonna be coming in not too long from now, and then you have what is basically Syria. They're gonna be called Syria from now on. Um, there's gonna be some Syrian leaders who are gonna start putting pressure on him. And so John Hyrcanius and then Alexander Janius are gonna be these two cats that are gonna start seeding some of those gains that Matthias had to maintain control over everything else, okay? So it is kind of half and half. They won their independence and freedom, with an asterisk, okay? But he's gonna be pressing and he's gonna be making sure that they are winning uh, the battle, pressing on those gains, expanding the territory. And eventually, Alexander Janius is actually gonna restore the borders all the way back to David and Solomon's area, right? <clears throat> this is a big deal. Like, keep in mind, this is a people who have been under the thumb of somebody for about 500 years. Right? And not only that, they were under somebody's thumb after they were in exile for about 70. And now they have this freedom that they're experiencing. What does that do to a person? Like, what does that build in them as far as anticipation? Add into that religious fervor about adhering back to the law. Because remember, there's all these dudes forcing circumcisions. Like, they are getting back to the law one way or another, right? So that's building up some tension. And where that tension comes from is in a really weird spot. This is going to be the first place that we're going to meet these guys. And what I'm going to show you, you need to think of them as like a political or a military kind of party that they think that their freedom ought to be earned a certain way. This is where we meet the Pharisees. Because during the Hasmonean dynasty, you have the Pharisees start showing up. And what these guys are going to do is they are going to lean on the Hasmoneans and say, you need to stop trying to like give over control of these other areas and you need to get back to the law. We have got to come back to covenantal faithfulness. Which is great, right? One of the things that the Pharisees start doing is they start... You know, they get outmaneuvered politically, militarily. There's internal strife. Um, they get outmaneuvered, but they don't go away. But what they start doing is they start establishing Torah schools. If you've ever wondered why, by the time you get to Jesus' day, there seems to be quite a bit of literacy around the Bible and the law, it's because the Pharisees, a hundred years earlier, couldn't win out on the battlefield or in the, you know, in Congress, as it were, for our situation they couldn't win politically so then they started influencing daily life by teaching little boys the Torah and this starts a hundred years earlier okay so now you've got the Pharisees who are on the field and they're gonna come back in a in a big way here after a little bit okay we're tracking with that so the Hasmonean dynasty is expanding you eventually get to these two cats uh, named Hyrcanius II and Aristobulus II and there is not just this internal strife it's actual open civil war 
And that goes on from 67 to 63 BC. So for about four years, there's actual open civil war where there is some land that's being held in Jerusalem versus the land that's out there where people are uh, much more difficult to control. And you can see where this infighting is actually coming to a head. And who is no longer over the horizon but is on the horizon that can step in and help? Rome. So Rome, being the good people they are, sees that there's some fighting. We've got some guys. How about you let us help you out? And they step in and they stabilize this civil war. That's how the Romans would have you believe it. But if you're more cynical or even just skeptical, you would say this is how they get down. They see weakness and they're on their way to go conquer the Seleucids. This used to be part of the Seleucid Empire. It's weak right now. Let's just throw our weight behind the horse that's gonna win and then we can come out on top. We were gonna win anyhow, so why make it a big deal? And so that's exactly what Rome does. They were already in the business of going east and defeating the Seleucids, the Parthenons. They're, they're eventually already gonna get there. In fact, General Pompey, who we're gonna meet here in a second, that's what his task is. Like literally, him and his brother were tasked to take Pompey, or I'm sorry, uh, Ptolemaic Egypt, and they were tasked to take in the Antagonid Empire, um, which is modern day Greece, and they were gonna meet in the middle and go further east to take over the Seleucids. That was their job. And they happen to show up in Judea and there's infighting and they say, you know what, we'll help out. Yeah, that's how this worked out. And so here's the big point that I want you to see in this time. The Hasmonean dynasty, done. They're done, they're already gone. We spent like 12 minutes on the Hasmonean dynasty right there. That was the window of their freedom, but here's the deal. That brief window opened the door for the Pharisees to now influence everyday life. They start teaching little boys Torah. They start helping people understand what adherence to the law means. Even if you're not in Jerusalem, you're not making those sacrifices. Okay, what do you do right here? Well, let's read and let's figure that out. You start seeing synagogues, what, we would, what would become known as synagogues. You start seeing those getting built a whole lot more frequently. Those are really going to ramp up under a cat named Herod that we're going to meet in the next slide. But the seeds of that are planted with the Pharisees here. Why might that be important? A century from now, that's the main opponents of Jesus, right? Because they were expecting one thing and Jesus is saying, that's not it. Yeah? All right, let's just pause right there. Hasmonean dynasty, Maccabees, all them boys, what you got? Any questions, comments? Larry, yes sir. Were the, were the Maccabees led by God? Depends on who you ask. So I actually, I started reading more on Jewish false messiahs. Um, during this time period, there's a cat named Honey the Circle Maker, um, Honey the Circle dryer, Drawer. And so he literally drew a circle um, because God hadn't let it rain. And he stood in that circle and said, God, I'm not leaving the circle until you make it rain. And it started drizzling. And then he starts cursing God, saying, that's not what I'm talking about. Send me more. And then God sends the rains, right? And so he was viewed as possibly the Messiah. And then there's another episode where he fell asleep for like two decades. Yeah, I'm telling you. There's seven of these cats. Just so you know, he wasn't the only one. There were six other cats along with Honey the Circle Maker. But here's the point. Here's the point. During the Second Temple period from 500 BC until 70 AD, there is this ramped up anticipation of God's got to be getting ready to do something big. Despite the fact that no prophets have shown up, the Maccabees weren't really considered prophets. But the three offices of prophet, priest, and king, there was already those clear seeds that the Messiah, the anointed one, wasn't necessarily going to be a prophet-like dude, but he was going to be like a king and a priest. And who was Matthias Maccabee? A priest. And now he's leading military campaigns. And his son, Judas the Hammer, and so you can see that that idea is starting to get put into people's mind that they're looking for the Messiah more and more and more. And it's going to be really important whenever we land about 100 years from now. Okay? Yeah, 
Yeah, so the, the question, the point you're making is that whether a book gets put into the canon of Scripture is also partly due to how frequently God is uh, mentioned in those books. I think I see the argument. The only, pro- only problem with that, even in our, our you know, Protestant Bible, is the book of Esther. Yeah, say, Esther. Esther has got, like, what, two references? One explicit and another one that's kind of eh. But, like, I, I, mean, I don't think his name is actually mentioned, but I think there's, like, a reference, not a recitation. But, like, so to your point, like, I get, you, I get what you're saying, but I don't think that's actually what's going on. Say again. Yeah, there are some people who believe that Esther shouldn't be in there. I, I'm not one of them. But, yeah, because even the Jews in this period thought Esther was authoritative. Right? So, all that being said, your question is well taken is, was God leading the Maccabees? Depends on who you ask. If you're asking me, like, sure. Sure. I, I see God working through history at a minimum, Right? If that's what you mean by leading, then yeah, sure. But I would also say then in the same breath, you have to say that God was working through and leading the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and eventually the Romans. And I would say, yes, that's how God operates in history. Yeah. So it's a good question to ponder. I don't know if I have enough insight um, from the Babylonian or the Jerusalem Talmuds, which are basically running commentaries on the scripture that were penned during this time. I don't have enough information in my head to say, well, they reference Matthias Maccabee as like the Messiah. I don't think there really was that going on, though. I could be wrong, but that's what I'm thinking. That's a good question, though. Really good question. Was there another question over here? Ed. The question is, were the Pharisees involved in military operations? I would say yes, in the sense of this is a very, um, uh, what's the term whenever you start gathering, like not a charismatic leader, but a a political movement that's very grassroots, it's from the ground up with uh, populist, very populist movement. And so within that populist movement are going to be people who are going to be more conservative and more liberal in what they view as acceptable. Uh, means to bring about the ends, right? And so in that sense, yeah, the Pharisees were in there as part of it, but also they are starting to form kind of these political alliances and they're aligning themselves because a lot of them are priests and they are of a priestly lineage. And so when John Hyrcanius and Alexander Janius, they start implementing more faithful priests in Jerusalem, some of these cats are the ones that they implement because they are faithfully holding to the law. And so that comes with a certain amount of influence. The zealots are a little bit different, but the zealots are going to be those who are kind of in the vein of the Pharisees, just in an extreme form, and they are not wanting to rebel against the, uh, the standing powers of Jerusalem. They're wanting to rebel against Rome primarily. And my question would be, well, why were the zealots so fired up at this point in history? Because 150 years earlier, they had seen their grandfathers and great-grandfathers do that exact thing against the Seleucids and won. Yeah. So you can see where those tensions are starting to build. Sue, is that, oh, actually, Ed, does that answer your question? Okay, Sue. So, where did the Sadducees come in? See them in a second. About to meet them. We're about to meet them. The question is, where are the Sadducees? We're about to meet them. Cool? All right. So, You've got this battle between Hyrcanius II and Aristobulus II, and what happens is the Romans are going to step in, and they're going to help placate, and they're going to stabilize the situation. So what they do is they stick their finger up in the wind, and they see which way it's blowing, and they say, okay, we're with that guy. That's basically what Pompey does. Yeah, and so he starts seeing who is going to win, and he sees that it's actually best to back uh, Hyrcanius uh, the second, right? He believes that this guy is actually easier to control than Aristobulus the second, because that dude's much more warlike. And even historically, uh, um, um, Hyrcanius the second actually was one of these guys who would cede over control to these areas that the Maccabees had won, so that he could retain his own power. And the Romans saw that's a guy they can manipulate, so they started backing him. Okay. 
And what happens with Rome, whenever they come into an area like this, they're looking for allies. They're not looking to make enemies that they don't have to. If they make enemies, you know what their deal is? What are they going to do with their enemies? They're going to wipe them out. That way you don't have to worry about them. But you know another way you don't have to worry about people? Don't make them your enemy. Make them your friend. One of those groups that they um, placate is going to be really important for us, not only historically from before this time period, but moving forward to where we get to Herod. So Pompey comes in and he brings about peace in Jerusalem. He puts Hyrcanius on the throne and to the point about the Sadducees and this political movement, the Pharisees, what were they doing? Part of the deal was that John Hyrcanius II was installed as the high priest. But you know who got the, the revenue from the temple to make him just go away? Aristobulus II. So the Romans were like, look, you can't have the title, you can't have the job, but what if you get the money? Will that make you happy? Yeah? Okay, go away then. Here's the money, go away. Hyrcanius, you're in charge. Have at it. And since they helped Hyrcanius be the one who won that position, who do you think he's going to help out? The Romans. Okay? So, Pompey, he brings in peace. And let me just be really clear, this is not all roses. The Romans would tell you, yeah, we stabilized the region. In fact, we organized it as part of a frontier province. We made them part of what is the Republic of Rome, not the empire. They haven't made that switch yet. We are incorporating them into the Republic. We're going to make them part of the fold. We're going to take care of them. Yeah, we're going to tax you. That's what happens. But, but we're going to build you some roads. In Pompey's... Uh, intrigue and his curiosity. Do you know what Pompey does whenever he goes into Jerusalem? He goes into the temple, starts looking around, goes, what's behind that curtain? He walks around into the Holy of Holies, just spends about five minutes in there, walks around, walks out. You can see how that right there, from his perspective, not a big deal. But if you're Hyrcanius, if you're any faithful Jew, what are you thinking? God, what? Shouldn't he be dead right now? We normally have a dude, the high priest, once a year, he goes in there with a rope tied on him in case he dies and we can drag his corpse out of that joint. That way we don't have to have other people dying in there. And he just waltzed in. This is not like just a simple, oh, he just came in and everything was great. Like there was a fight and there was desecration done. Now he didn't loot the temple, which was good, but he absolutely could have, right? And the Romans are now in 63, they are there. That is a way of life literally for the next 1,500 years. Sorry. And this is how it begins with Pompey rolling into town. Okay? Whenever he is installing all these other guys, he installs Hyrcanius as the high priest. He pays off Aristobulus and says, here's some go away money. Now go away, right? And one of the other things that they do is they say, you know what, like, there's a whole bunch of other folks that helped me win this battle. There's, like, some guys that would eventually become, like, Samaritans eventually. They don't have that name, but we're going to make them part of the empire. We're going to make these Judeans. And these Idumeans, they helped us out a lot, too. Does that word Idumean sound similar to anything else? They are the descendants of the Edomites. And so the Edomites were actually backing Hyrcanius for the exact same reason the Romans were. He's easy to control. We can manipulate him. We can take over this land later on. And there was this cat named Antipater, who was the leader of the Idumeans, right? The descendants of the Edomites. Now, let's just pause right there. Why might you not want that to be a thing that happens if you're a Jew? They're descended from Esau. These are like some of your oldest enemies who have been in the land. And now they're shoulder to shoulder with you in this Roman province. Not only that, Antipater was a great guy. Swell dude. Great guy. Never met him, right? And he gets close to Pompey. And so Antipater, he actually gains Rome's favor. And he's actually made procurator over this whole area. So within... 67 to 63, civil war. 63, the Romans come in, they settle everything. 62, they have peace. We're like a Roman province and an Edomite's in charge. From seven years earlier when Israel was free, do you see the tension here? 
Do you see it? Antipater is a swell guy, right? He gets in good with the Romans. Um, he had supported Hyrcanius. He had backed the right horse as well, and so the Romans are going to reward him. Why would they not? They don't care who's in charge as long as they don't have to fight them. They don't care. The Romans don't. Neither did Alexander. Neither did the Persians. Neither did the Greeks. I'm sorry, neither did the Babylonians. They didn't care. It's just as long as it wasn't a fight they had to have. So who cares who's, on, who's in charge? But what this does for us in our context is you should see that simmering tension starting to get to the surface more and more. So part of this deal with Antipater is that he gains Rome's favor so much that he has a son. And he's going to send him to Rome a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean like 20 different times. This dude is basically going to be a diplomatic envoy between the provincial leader of Judea and Rome. And that dude, his name is Herod. And Antipater is so good at playing the political game, he actually wins a uh, pledge of marriage for his son, Herod, to uh, Marion, who is the granddaughter of Matthias Maccabee. The guy who started the whole revolt, his granddaughter is still kicking around, and Antipater gets his grandson a marriage with her. And so what this Edomite has done is he has tied his son, not as an Edomite, but he has tied him to the Hasmoneans. See how good this dude is? And Antipater sends Herod to Rome. He learns all sorts of cool stuff. And what is he going to bring back? He's going to bring back the Roman way. Eventually Antipater dies. And whenever he does, Herod takes his place. And guess what he starts doing? He starts removing all those Hasmoneans. Why would he not? He's in charge. I'm a Hasmonean. I'm married to one of them, right? No big deal. And so he starts removing a lot of these Jewish leaders. And so we went from a century and a half earlier, the revolt was on, the rebellion was happening, we won our freedom, to now those leaders are ousted. And Herod the Great was an excellent politician. And this is when he gets his name, not just Herod, but Herod the Great. He starts bringing in the Roman way of life. He starts figuring out taxation. And you know what he does with that money? He doesn't keep it all for himself. He really doesn't. In fact, he actually pays off Roman soldiers not to plunder the temple with all that tax money right, that he gathered from the people. And so in a weird way, if you were a Jew in Jerusalem, you actually were thankful that this guy was the one who was in charge, that he was slick enough to pay off the Romans. He was an incredibly good politician. But you know what? Homeboy was also incredibly cruel. He had at least four of his sons murdered. He also had this chick named Marion, his wife, the granddaughter of Matthias Maccabee, had her killed because she was a threat. This is the Herod from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Really, Matthew and Luke, when Jesus is born, and he's flipping out because there's some claimant to the throne, so we got to kill all them boys down in Bethlehem. That's this Herod. So let's just take a moment and step back. Herod as an Edomite, an Idumean, it's kind of this weird mix of Edomite and kind of Jewish, but also his sons at this point were tied back to their mother, Marion, who was part of the Hasmonean dynasty, essentially. So like he is in like Flynn with an asterisk. And he's the guy who's leading Jerusalem at this time, leading the Judean province at this point. Now, there's going to be a governor who's going to be over him. Eventually, we'll run into that guy later in the gospel accounts, Pilate. So there is somebody over him, but as far as local ruler, he's it. The name Basileus starts getting used. Basileus is the Greek word for king. And Herod starts using it. He is king over Judea, essentially. Now, again, big asterisk because there's a governor, because there is a Roman province, and you are not going to claim the title of king unless Rome allows it. Let's be really clear about that, right? But that's Herod the Great. So let me bring us to our big point. All, and I mean all, all of our major tensions that we find in the New Testament are solidified under Herod. We had the ability to be free. We threw off the Seleucids. We had that. 
and it got snatched away from us. You've got the Pharisees who are running around saying, hey, we need to adhere to the law, start reading this. You've got the Sadducees, which we'll see here in just a moment. They're in there saying, actually, you know, the Romans maybe they're not so bad. And then you've got everyone else who's just some regular old cat out in Jerusalem, out in Judea, who's a Jew, and they have had just the air that they're breathing is like, God's got to be doing something big. And they're looking for the Messiah. And who's the next guy they meet? Your boy Johnny B. All right, before we get into him, questions about Rome entering, Herod the Great, Hasmonean dynasty ending, Pompey, all them boys. Questions there? Ed. Did, when the Romans instilled or installed the high priest, did the high priest have any real influence? Define what you mean by influence. Because the Romans are perfectly fine with letting you do your thing. And this is, I mean, this is no lie. This is actually from edicts that were handed down by Roman emperors, by the Caesars. As long as you paid your taxes and you weren't rebelling against us, do what you want. We don't care. The moment you start fighting, the moment you don't pay us, we will come down on you and you will not survive. So, the high priest, what do you think one of the tensions that he has to balance is? Covenantal faithfulness, yes. This anticipation of the Messiah who's going to come, yes. But also, he can't be getting too crazy with that because what if Rome starts looking at that as you instilling sedition and you're going to fight against Rome? What's Rome going to do? The first thing they're going to do is toss you out, kill you, kill your family. So, yes, they have influence, but, I mean, this is Rome we're talking about. Like, this is Rome whenever we meet them next with John the Baptist. This is after Julius Caesar had basically made his campaign all the way to Great Britain and come back. And just, like, this is when Rome was, like, at their fiercest, when nobody wanted to mess with them. What's that high priest going to do? You know? So there, there, he does have some power on a very local level, but on a macro scale, not so much. Does that answer your question? Yes, but, but the uh, high priest was God determined who the priest was to their, their religion, didn't he? And here, a foreign government is determining who is going to be your high priest, not God. So. so the question there, or the rebuttal is, doesn't God choose who the high priest is? Well, yeah, yeah. In the same exact way that I know it's a little bit of a different scenario, but much later, whenever you get into the medieval period, you know who decides who the new pope is going to be more times than not? Whoever the most powerful king in the area is, he decides, not the College of Cardinals. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like, y'all, y'all do your thing. I'm just saying, if it's not Sue who's on that, uh, coming out that window, on out the balcony, if it's not her, I'm not going to help you. And what's the next thing you see? Oh, Sue's in the window. Hey, the College of Cardinals have elected Sue, right? It's kind of that deal. Like, yes, according to the law, they should have God be the one choosing. But my contention this whole time is like, yeah, but also God does work through history. And like how that tension works out is incredibly perplexing for us a lot of times. Yeah, Sue? Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the storm on the sea and had Peter get out of the boat. So was it Peter's choice to have the storm and yep. show off and walk on the water? Or was it God in control? Yeah. Yeah, so, and this is where it gets into human agency and God's sovereignty and how those two interact. Yeah, and my whole contention this time is God has been working through history. Wow, that sounds like you're saying God's sovereign. Wouldn't you? Now, how far that sovereignty extends, we can have that conversation. But I would say God is working through history, period. 
And Ed, that's an excellent question. And I am certain that there have been numerous books, lots of ink has been spilt on trying to answer that question. And I am wholly unqualified to like answer it, but that is the right question. You're asking it like, so was this whole thing just a ruse? Like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm really not. Even whenever Jesus is drug in front of Caiaphas, I'm not saying that was a ruse. Now, what they did in that moment, now that was a kangaroo court for sure. But how that dude, Caiaphas, got to be the high priest, like, I'm not saying that this was just a fluke, nor was it something that was completely contrived. It was intended and directed, and God can use that and work through it. That's about the best answer I can get. Now, if that's unsatisfying, hey, welcome to the club. I find it kind of unsatisfying, to be honest with you. Yeah? All right. All of our tensions that we find in the New Testament are firmly established by 63 BC. By the way, Jesus was not born on zero. In fact, that year doesn't exist. There is no zero. Most likely, Jesus was born at like 5 BC. So we kind of got off on the math. Neither here nor there. Point is, 50 years, 60 years earlier before Jesus was born, all of our tensions are there. Then you fast forward another 30 years whenever Jesus is walking around. We're talking 100 years where Israel has been under the oppression of Rome with an Edomite in charge of them, essentially, right? Because Herod is going to die, Herod the Great is going to die, and you're going to get to Herod the Third. I think, is actually the Herod that we run into with Jesus being drugged in front of him. Um, but this is all the same family, right? Same guys. And the first voice you hear is not John 1.1, it's not Mark 1, it's not Matthew, it's not Luke. The first voice you hear is your boy Johnny B. And the first words we hear out of his mouth from the Gospels is, prepare the way of the Lord, right? Make straight. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. Doesn't that seem like this is kind of historically a wilderness for Israel? There's all these tensions like, man, where are we? What exactly are we doing? So I'm going to be one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path for the Lord. He's coming. And he's out there dunking these folks out in the Jordan River. And then one day his cousin shows up. And what does he say? There he is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And anyone within earshot, if they picked up on that, my money is on, they were thinking, oh, if he is the Messiah, cool. How much longer until the Romans are gone? And that's not Jesus' deal. And frankly, that's also not even John's deal. Let me illustrate that. So, during John's lifetime, there is this huge anticipation of being freed from Rome. 150 years earlier, they had done it to the Seleucids, right? We had kicked them boys out of town. Like, we got our Hasmonean dynasty. We are in charge. And it lasts about a century, and then it goes away, right? But they have that lingering in their memory. So there's this building anticipation. And we have two groups running around, the Pharisees, and they are seeking fidelity to the law, which is actually what they have been all about. True to their colors, like good on them. That's what they've been all about. All these Torah schools, all these boys they're educating in the law, that's what they're holding to. But there's always an opposite kind of faction, and this is the Sadducees. Sadducees are not nearly as theologically well-rounded. There's also some Edomite influence in them. But more importantly, they were all about, hey man, just get along with the Romans, go along to get along, man. Just don't, don't upset the apple cart. So the Sadducees are now on the field as well. They've been around for a while, but this is where we actually start seeing them in Jesus' day and John the Baptist's day, right? And so these guys are kind of like the opposite of the Maccabeans, right? The Maccabeans were saying, hey, y'all have given into these Greek influences, and y'all hadn't even circumcised your boys. Line them up. We're going to do it right now. And the guys who would have been holding off on circumcision so that the Greeks didn't get upset would have been people like the Sadducees. You see how there's kind of this binary polarization that's happening here? This is the tension that your boy Johnny B is walking into day one of his life. But here's the deal. Sadducees are about conforming to Roman standards. Go along to get along. The Pharisees are being a little more seditious and they're teaching adherence to the law and there's going to be this one who's coming and he's going to overthrow the Romans. And John is saying, neither. I'm not with either one of them. I'm looking for the Christ. 
Why do you think he was out there at the river so frequently? One, I think God is ordaining it in such a way that he knew that it was just a matter of time before the Lamb of God came up to him. He knew Jesus. That's his play cousin. That's his cousin, literally. Six months younger than him. He knew him. Don't you think John heard some stories about his cousin named Jesus who like, man, he's just like the perfect kid, right? Certainly those stories were floating around. And so John's out there being faithful in his ministry, preparing the way for the Lord, and then one day he shows up and he says, I'm not going to be conformed by whatever's going on around here. You want me to wear something? Let me get that goat skin and get a you know, camel hide and let me get a belt of leather. Oh, you want me to eat your normal food? Give me some of them bugs. You want me to get a haircut? No. And John the Baptist, your boy Johnny B, he's starting to sound a whole lot like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, right? On purpose, because he's got to get people's attention. There's one who is coming who is greater than me, and I cannot even tell that dude what to do. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to be glad when he's here and he shows up. And what John does, since he's the first voice, we're starting to see that all those simmering tensions are now at their apex. What is it that gets John killed? How does he die? Say again. He has his head cut off. The question is, why? He was calling out Herod, saying, you shouldn't be doing all this sexual immorality you're doing. You shouldn't do it. God's going to judge you. And Herod's like, oh, sexual morality, you say. Let me look at my niece. I like the way she's dancing. What do you want me to give you? Oh, his head? No problem. Go get it. You see how John the Baptist doesn't give in to those pressures. And in fact, he's actually meeting them head on, but he's not doing it the way that everyone thought that it, that it should have gone down. The Romans weren't any less in charge after John died. Heck, Herod's not even any less in charge. In fact, he's probably more in charge. Right? But he's not going to be boxed in because he's looking for a different outcome. And that different outcome is not the overthrow of the Romans like the Seleucids got overthrown. It's the overthrowing of death and sin and Satan. And he's looking for the Christ to come do that. Yeah? All right. Here's the big picture for John. His proclamation, let me tie it all the way back to week one. He is proclaiming and announcing that God's covenantal faithfulness is now seen here in Jesus. He ties it all the way back. I think my grammar up there is jacked up. Don't worry about that. Listen to me. Here, don't, don't look at that. Don't look at that. Look at me. He's saying, you remember that promise that was made to Abraham? There it is. What about? No, no, no. Right there. Okay, but what about Rome? No, him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, but what about Rome? takes away the sin of the world. Who cares about them Romans? The world's sin are going to be placed on him, and he's going to sacrifice himself for you. We don't like that message. Sorry. I don't have another one. I'm all out. Yeah? That's the tensions that we see arriving at the beginning of the New Testament. Yeah? All right. Let me give us our final thoughts, and then we'll close out with other questions. One, the Romans are brutal. Your boy Pompey doesn't just come in and provide security and provide peace. Like, no, he, he's ruthless. He is. But make no mistake, God uses the Romans to make the Great Commission explode. How are all these dudes, how are all these missionaries getting everywhere like Paul? What are they using? The Roman infrastructure, their roads. So, Ed, hey, was this God's doing? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what else I would call that. That's a very happy coincidence, if not, I don't believe there's such a thing as luck. I believe in God's providence, not luck. So the Romans are brutal, but God absolutely uses them. Your boy Johnny B, he arrives at a critical moment of incredibly high tensions. And he actually dies as a result of him being unwilling to waver on what it is that God called him to say. Incidentally, his cousin is going to suffer the same fate at the hand of the Romans. And then lastly, Jesus ultimately, he is going to incite these events that are threatening the status quo for these Jewish leaders. Sadducees and the Pharisees, y'all don't get off. 
By the way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they start forming these groups in different towns because we can't be sending all of our problems up to Jerusalem. We need, we need to get a group of people together here. Anywhere between 3 and 23 men, let's call them elders. Let's have them gather together soon. That's the Greek word for meaning together. And then they have a uh, Sanhedrin, a gathering of elders. And there's little Sanhedrins all over the place, but there's one big one. And that Sanhedrin is going to be the one to say, yeah, this guy needs to die. He claims to be God. And the whole time, us as Christians are saying like, yeah, and they missed it. But we've got to see that the reason they missed it is because they're looking for something that Jesus never said he was going to do. They were wanting to overthrow the Romans because the Seleucids, that's what happened to them a century and a half earlier, two centuries earlier, and he's not doing it, so he can't be the guy. It's just they were looking in the wrong place. And that's how I say God works through history. Uses all those tensions, uses all these characters, all these different forces in history to bring about his ends at the right time. What Paul says is that Christ died for the ungodly at the perfect time. While you were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you. That's the Sanhedrin. That's Caiaphas. That's Ptolemy. That's Pompey. That's Alexander. Darius. Nebuchadnezzar. All them boys. All of us. That's what he's doing. All right. Questions about Romans? How we landed in the New Testament? What's up with your boy Johnny B? Questions? What you got? question that we have to answer is how is covenantal faithfulness going to be or how is relationship going to be restored with God it's only ever always through God's covenantal faithfulness was Jesus the fulfillment of that covenantal promise to Abraham John certainly thought so it's the Lamb of God right there he's going to do all those things that was told to Abraham Isaac Jacob all the mother guys all the way to David all the way to us that's where it culminates and then Mark Jesus is saying, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it. Everybody's going to be done after me. So how is covenantal faithfulness going to be demonstrated? Through Jesus. Ultimately, it ain't going to be through you. You will fail. You do fail. You can't do anything but fail at some point. Only through Jesus is that possible. And so the answer is, how is relationship to be restored? Only ever always through covenantal faithfulness? We can replace that phrase with, only ever always through Jesus. That's our only hope right now. I mean, that's what, that's what all this stuff is about this time of year, is it not? We're celebrating that now there's a name to attach to that promise, and we see that life being celebrated eventually until we get to his death at Easter, yeah, his resurrection. All right, final questions about the series, about everything else we've gotten here so far tonight. For those of you who have hung around for the last 15 weeks, do you feel like you have a better handle on like the flow or the sequence of events that brought us to here? If not, we got it recorded. Go back and listen. It'll help you out, I promise. That's the problem, man, is I'm, I'm covering three, 400 years in a chunk in 45 minutes. That's, that's impossible to do well, right? But this is my best attempt, yeah? All right, let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you that we see you work through history, not just in a judgmental way, but also in a gracious way. You don't just leave us to our own devices, but as our brother Peter says, you have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And Father, we hopefully have seen that through history and the way that you have worked through armies and how you have worked through kings and how you have worked through ordinary people. Um, Father, I pray that you would give us the desire to see that storyline play out even more, even in our own lives, that we are seeing that you are not done working either and that you're going to work even through us. And so, Father, I praise you for your sovereignty and your wisdom, even though I do not claim to understand it completely. I, I am certain of that much. And, Father, I know that you are worthy of being praised because of it. And so, Lord, we thank you for sending your Son on our behalf. We thank you for enlivening our hearts through your spirit, for our need to see him as our Savior. And Father, we thank you for the love and the goodness that you demonstrate to us on a daily basis. And so Father, we love you and we need you. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right.
Next semester, January 24th, 1 John, start reading now. Get that junk memorized, yeah? All right, if you got any questions, I'll be up here.